vodka politics is the interchange point between Russian state and society, but it, one of the deplorable tragedies of all this is what it does to that society and how it contributes to this excess mortality and how it contributes to the sort of demographic implosion. Hello and welcome to the SRB Podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics and history. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. For this episode, I'm pleased to welcome to the show Mark Schrad to talk about the history of vodka in Russia and how the spirit has shaped Russian statecraft and society. Mark Schrad is an assistant professor in political science at Villanova University. He's the author of Vodka Politics, Alcohol, Autocracy, and the Secret History of the Russian State, which was just released in paperback. Here's Mark Schrad. Why don't we start by just having you answer the question, why did you write a book looking at Russian politics through the lens of vodka? Well, this is probably a bit of a longer answer than you want, but uh, this has been my focus and my passion for, for many, many years, uh, even well before grad school. And it was always a thing that got pushed off into the back, you know, it was uh, always pushed off in the back burner. You know, when I went to do a PhD in political science, you know, I, was, I wanted to do, you know, look at Russian history and how we get to the point, especially in the 1990s, with you know, this demographic catastrophe fueled by a lot of, a lot of vodka. But when I was in grad school, they said, no, no, you have to do comparative politics. You can't just do one country. And so push that off until after afterwards. So this book was ultimately kind of born of a couple things. It was when I was having my passion as a, as a high schooler and then a, as an undergraduate and a graduate student you know, with a, a passion for Russian history. You know, I, I did what's, what you do when you read old history books and, and you, you end up focusing in sometimes on scandals. And that's uh, honestly how I remembered, you know, going backwards in history, looking at Russian czars and czarinas is uh, the ones that the things that stuck with me were some of the, the scandalous moments. And at one point I thought, you know, this would be a fun way. It, it, it certainly piqued my own interest in, in Russian history. I thought I might be able to, to, you know, pique other people's interest in it as well by looking at the role of alcohol and vodka in particular. So at one point, I guess this was maybe 2009 when I was, uh, in my third year visiting down at the University of Illinois, my wife and I made a pact and we said, hey, if I can't get a job this next time around, we're just going to pack it up and move to Washington, D.C. and forget about academia and do whatever it is you do with a Ph.D. in, in political science in, in, uh, in Washington. But I told her, I said, you know, I always had this idea for this book on sort of the history of Russia through the bottom of a vodka bottle. And I would always feel remiss if I packed up and left academia without actually writing it. So I put together a couple sample chapters, and I drove up to Chicago for the Midwestern Political Science Association meeting, which is up there every year, and just kind of shopped it around the room. And it killed. You know, there were all these publishers who wanted it, and I was I felt really positive about this uh, moving forward. But it was one of those things that just struck me home that, uh, you know, I had all this uh, interest in this, this book project, but still couldn't find a job anywhere. It just uh, hammered home how it comes to both sort of academic publishing and sort of the academic job market is just, it's, it's complete crapshoot. You know, there's so much uncertainty in the, in the whole system. So, so that's when I finally got around, you know, and then I, uh, thankfully I did end up a, with a, a position here at, at Villanova University and that kind of allowed me to, uh, to build this thing. And it kept growing and building. It started, you know, I think the original prospectus was for, for 12 chapters. It ended up being 24 chapters because there was so much material in it. So that was, uh, that was, you know, sort of the interesting thing was how it sort of 
built upon itself uh, from kind of very humble origins. And and but why why vodka? Like, what is it about this? substance, this drink, its place in Russian culture. And I would imagine that, you know, one of the things you talk about in your introduction is the fear of people seeing this book as just another kind of built upon various stereotypes of Russians, right? We, we associate vodka with Russia a lot. But what, what, is, what does vodka provide you as a lens in terms of trying to understand the movement of the Russian history, various events, personalities, and statecraft? When I originally conceived of the book, it was almost more of a kind of a pop history just the idea of stringing together anecdotes that had something to do with alcohol throughout Russian history. But as you know, the, the project progressed, and I, I sort of hit upon this notion of vodka as uh, being sort of this fulcrum of, of Russian statecraft, this sort of interchange between Russian state and Russian society, I was like, oh, I'm finding these links all throughout. You know? and, and so using some of those anecdotes, some of those you know, sort of drunken escapades of Russian czars or more Boris Yeltsin, I guess, more contemporary period. You, know, you had some of those elements, but you also had this notion that vodka has been there for a long time. And you can tell a whole lot of the story of the Russian state, at least the modern Russian state, with vodka. And I, I do think it's one of those things, I, as I write in the book, vodka is not everything in Russian history, uh, but it's a lot of things. And it's, it can tell us some things that uh, start to make sense a little bit more with sort of this lens of you know, vodka as sort of the interplay between state and society rather than your more conventional histories of the Russian autocracy. Well, let's get into some of that. Um, you have a term, vodka politics, which is seems to be, from my reading of the book, is a form of political practice, or as you call it, a central fulcrum in Russian statecraft. What is vodka politics? Vodka politics, I mean, it is it's kind of a catch-all term. It's not a hard and fast analytical term, but it is some notion of the interplay of the Russian state and uh, is an attempt to utilize alcohol to ensure some sort of dominance over the Russian society. And so it includes sort of all manner of things, including, you know, the attempts to, on some, in some cases, try to rein in the alcoholic excesses of society. And in other cases, try to actually promote the alcoholic excesses of societies in, in the interest of the Russian state and its, uh, its coffers. And so the, the financial angles is one of those things, but also sort of the there is that that elements that you hear from time to time, but I'm not so keen on that. This notion that you know, well, if we keep them all completely drunk and stupefied, well, then nobody's going to rise up against you. For me, I think it's more about primarily, I should say, about the economics and the finances, state finances. All right, well, I'm going to have you get into a bit of that, but first, I, I the origins of vodka are a bit of a bit controversial. Did it originate in Russia? Did it originate in Poland? Where did it come from? Russians in the early modern period were drinking things like mead and beer. And Russia and vodka eventually became to dominate the Russian alcoholic palate. What is the origins of vodka and how did it become a, the alcoholic drink of choice? That's an interesting question, too, is that uh, part of my puzzle as to uh, if you look at, at his, his geographies of modern Europe, people make these maps of the beer drinking regions and the wine drinking regions and the spirits drinking regions of Europe. And they say, well, geography has a lot to do with that. You see, you're not going to have a lot of wine drinking regions, places where grapes don't grow, right? So the wine drinking regions of Italy and Spain and, and sort of Mediterranean climates. But then you go north of there, it tends to be more beer drinking regions. Um, and then, of course, as you go into Eastern Europe, especially the former Russian Empire, these are predominantly spirits drinking regions. And um, for a long time, you know, that, that, that was always that explanation that it had something to do with geography 
and uh, some sort of geographic determinism as to why people drink what they do. But looking at these maps, they're not just just temperature maps. They're not just climate maps. They're political maps as well. And so you find that those areas that are predominantly vodka drinking or spirits drinking regions tend to be both the Nordic states and the former Russian Empire. So that became something of an interesting to me, to me as well. Vodka is just, it's a distilled spirit. It's the same family as uh, sort of your gins and your rums. And so you can go back to the old the medieval alchemists in trying to look for the the spirit of life, eau de vie, and, and, uh, and all that. And so we have pretty good information as to, at least in, in sort of the deep history of it, uh, that you know you can go back to like the 11th century and, and find references to the rediscovery of distillation, which I think the, the Arabians used to, to have some of this uh, technology well before then. But then the, the puzzle was always, how do we figure out how vodka comes to be in Russia or in some of these other places that you mentioned, like Poland and, and so on, which also has a very deep you know, vodka tradition. Now, how does it get from alchemists in Genoa to to Moscow, to Muscovy, or to uh, to, to Eastern Europe? And so, and that you know, I spent uh, quite a bit of time examining this question. Uh, and there are all sorts of different explanations. One is that it had uh, Genoese traders that traded in the Black Sea, especially around Crimea. And then, as the the, the hordes are pressing into those areas, then. The Genoese flee north and take their, their medicine, their technology with them northward. Other people say that it is, there may have been a more northerly route through the Hanseatic League and, and maybe down through Novgorod. And then other people have suggested that there are sort of domestic distillation techniques that it was you know, completely indigenous. For all my research into this, I couldn't find a good answer to that. You know, I can't, I guess it's one of the, the downsides of this, this, this book is that I wanted it just to be definitive in, in some ways, but uh, you know, there's just no way to find when vodka came about. And the best I could do was to look at, to go to Moscow, to go to the, the Vodka History Museum, or if you ask anybody, Russia, you know, some, some knowledge of this, they usually go back to, uh, to William Pachlopian's book on the origins of Russian vodka. And they'll tell you the same things that it was manufactured, it was first discovered in the Kremlin in uh, 1455 or something. They ultimate precision that this is exactly what happened. But, but if you push on it, and some historians like David Christian have, tried to follow up on some of this, and they find it's complete academic fraud. But it's the kind of fraud that's been perpetuated so frequently that uh, it's been repeated. It's become almost folklore at this point in time. Well, that's the. Th- I think that's the thing, right? Despite all of its ills on Russian society, it still maintains itself as a kind of national drink of sorts. And so it, it, I would imagine there's some sort of national pride tied into some of this folklore. Right, right. And this kind of ties into another interesting aspect that I came at this chapter on the, on the origins of, of vodka. When I originally went to Russia, I didn't have any, I didn't have any qualms about this Pochlopkin's work and his history on, on Russian vodka. I had no reason to question it. But if you know, I guess one of the, the anecdotes that comes out of the book is that this guy, William Pochlopkin, was seen as something of a dissident writer during the Soviet years or wrote a lot about tea and he wrote, he was kind of a big culinary guy, he wrote all sorts of cookbooks about, uh, you know, all over the world. And so he wrote this thing that came out as sort of the definitive history of Russian vodka. And the preface to it essentially says that published, first published in, as the Soviet Union was falling apart in 1991. And the preface to the book says, this essentially, this is not information that I ever expected to write in a in book format. This was all based upon research that I had done back in the 80s when there was an international court case where apparently the Poles, fraternal Poland, uh, you know, in the Soviet bloc, had sued the Soviet Union for the rights to the word vodka. And so I was like, okay, that's that's really interesting. And and, and so at this point in time, I had a research assistant, and and the one task I, I gave my research assistant was 
let's find that court case. Let's get that information and see. You know, I want to see what the documents are. If it was at an international court, you should be able to get this sort of information. And we found out that it just didn't exist. There was no there was no court case. You know, it was never specific as to whatever court, some sort of international arbitration court. And I had my, this research assistant. That was the one, he had, you know, he had one job figure this out. And it just wasn't there. So we were chasing stuff around in the Library of Congress. We were chasing stuff all around uh, around Russia. I started interviewing some of these people who were involved in the disputes in, in terms of Soyuz Plot Import, which was the Soviet export monopoly. And even they said that they there was no such dispute. And so I was like, okay, this if your backstory is completely fabricated, how are we supposed to um, know the rest of this? But to get back to your point about sort of the, the national importance and symbolism of it, Pokhlyopkin, who was something of a recluse, lived down in Pogols, south of Moscow, never never drank, never went out, and communicated. I don't think he even used a telephone for a long time. But he was very suspicious. And, and one night, this was, uh, was actually, I forget, it was, I think it was, it was March 7th, two, uh, in the year 2000, which I think was the day of Vladimir Putin's first in, uh, inauguration. He was found murdered in his home. I think he was stabbed like 19 times with a long-handled screwdriver. And and the, the murder's never been solved. But if you read a lot of the, the histories, there's such sort of glorification of Pochlubkin as this guy who, again, according to his account, sort of defended Russian-Soviet predominance on, on vodka against those Poles. The thing was, the suspicion in Russia always has been that he was murdered by a vengeful Pole that was trying to steal their, their national heritage and, and steal away from Russia. So, so it's, it's fascinating, some of these things, where I had absolutely, when I started this project, I had no idea I would be investigating, you know, sort of murder mysteries or uh, going into sort of the ancient history of the development of, of vodka or even looking into things like the old uh, Novgorod Birchmark documents. I mean, these are things I had no idea. Yeah, it's it, it, it. The book definitely has a lot of scandal. And I mean, the, the, the murder story is just one on the tip of a very big iceberg of of scandalous stories in the book. And and you, you do chronicle a lot of these kind of salacious, drunken debauchery amongst the Russia's leaders uh, in particular, how the ruler or the autocrat, whether that autocrat is Peter the Great or Stalin, uses vodka to subordinate or control it, their courts, the people in their court. What does this illuminate about Russian autocratic practice, how, how they relate to their, the, their subordinates the use, in the use of vodka? I mean, that's a good question. It's, it's not certainly something that's not sort of an ironclad rule that if you're in, if you're an autocrat, then you have to do this. Or if you're a Russian autocrat, then you have to try to keep people drunk and divided, unable to mount sort of a challenge to your autocracy. But it is interesting that you have these similar dynamics. The book starts off with the, the insights of Nikita Khrushchev and how when he was in Stalin's Politburo, Stalin would, on a nightly basis, try and ply them all with alcohol and, and um, you know, keep them off base. And then you know, that's a, an interesting way to kind of use that link to go back and, and say, okay, well, it was not just Stalin who was doing this 70 years ago, but it was also Ivan the Terrible was doing this and Peter the Great was doing this and... You know, to a lesser extent, even you see this popping up again in, in Yeltsin's term and whatnot. So, so it was just one of those things that I, I thought was interesting for the details to get into sort of the nitty gritty of, of uh, politics. And especially, I think, from the Stalin period, because I'm also, you know, historically inclined. I like to, to hear these things and, and uh, try, and, and not just the, the details of it, but um, some of these reminiscences of people who would go to Stalin's court and just reflect on the fact that, you know, at this point in time, especially after World War II, you have Stalin making some grandiose decisions about the future, not only of Eastern Europe, but you know the Cold War and sort of the global political order in this 
atmosphere of complete drunkenness. And it's, uh, it's, it's fascinating, you know, to get some of those insights. The other thing that I guess is, uh, one last thing is, is it, I did want to use it as something as, as a, uh, sort of a metaphor, you know, sort of the thing that you have, uh, with, you know, Stalin and his subordinates or Ivan the Terrible and his Oprichniki and whatnot. And the boyars was, you know, trying to keep them drunk and off balance and unable to mount a collective opposition to, uh, to their rule is kind of, you can make a sort of an analogy there with the relationship between Russian state and society, that there is this notion that trying to keep the states um, sort of prostrate in terms of its uh, civil society and unable to, to mount a challenge to the, to the power of the Russian state. Now, you mentioned a bit ago about the importance of the finances and revenues and the economy of the Russian state and how it's wedded to vodka. Uh, talk about the reasons and the ways that vodka and state revenue were, were tied together. The, the roots go back uh, very far back to the the origins, and I think it's uh, it's hard to completely disentangle the you know the revenue aspects of the Russian state with what we were talking about earlier about why is it that Russians drink vodka. So if you look back into some of these these early Russian histories of the Tsar's taverns, the the old story that gets handed down is that uh, after the conquest of, of Kazan, uh, Ivan the Terrible sees that institutes this um, system whereby the the state would have a monopoly on taverns and, and the tavern industry and extract all the, the revenues and, and uh, the, you know, you'd have the ta- tavern keeper, the Celevalnik, you know, the Celevalniki would spit, the kissers would kiss an oath of loyalty upon the cross to deliver revenue to the to the czar. And so some of these histories of these early kabaks give an explanation that it wasn't just vodka in there. You know, in the early days you had all those things we talked about before. You had you had your kvases, you had um, you know, some mead, you'd have different types of ales and beers, and then you'd have vodka, some wine, usually for the more affluent uh, people who would come in. But gradually over time, vodka, I guess due to its higher potency and its much larger profit margins for distilled beverage, as opposed to some of these more brewed, traditional uh, brewed beverages, was essentially a, a huge source of revenue. So gradually over time, over a span of 100 years or so, vodka eventually nudges out most of the competition to the point where most of the, the kabaks are producing and selling mostly uh, mostly you know, alcoholic beverages, vodka. And so that was the fact that it had been such a long monopoly in Russia. And you had this, uh, you know, the system, the early system was one of, of tax farming. So they would farm out the revenue to individuals who would, uh, you know, have the exclusive right to farm the vodka revenues in a given gubernia or, or whatnot, different given tax district. And they would essentially sort of be the, the barons there. And so as long as they delivered what they said they would in terms of revenue to the state, then they could feel free to push as much alcohol as they wanted to on their uh, on their people. And so that continued straight up until the 1860s, with part of the great reforms of Alexander II, uh, along with emancipation. They finally got rid of this tax farm system, which is uh, arcane, it was out of date, and it was, it was really a generator of a lot of, due to the fact that you had a blurring of the lines between public and private, these, these tax farmers, it was also the source of a lot of Russian corruption and whatnot. So you had that, uh, and that was removed in the 1860s, you had an excise system, but by the 1890s, under Sergei Vita, uh, you have sort of the general re-encroachment of a, of a, a czarist monopoly, you know, distribution monopoly, not a production monopoly. That goes on, there's a brief period of prohibition in from 1914 to 1925 and in Russia from the late Tsar's period to, to the early Soviet period under, under Lenin. But then Stalin, once he comes to power, essentially redevelops that, uh, that old Tsarist monopoly system. And that continues right until the end of the, the Soviet system. And, and when Russia, when the, the demographic impacts of you know, alcohol in the 1990s you know, are just 
unbearable. You all, the only call that you have, the only alternative that Russian policymakers seem to have is a call for, you know, bringing back the old monopoly as though there's, you know, that was the, the only thing that was uh, keeping people sober back in the day was the monopoly. But then there's the notion that they at least have some greater control over what people were drinking and how much. And I also notice, I mean, one of the questions that repeatedly comes up in post-Soviet Russia, especially over the last couple of years, as the state tries to get a better kind of handle on in discouraging alcohol consumption, is about whether to raise the price of vodka, restrict the sale of vodka. Now, I, from what I know, you can't buy vodka in Russia in kiosks or even in small shops. You can only get it at grocery stores. So the state seems to try, is trying to, as it has in the past, trying to regulate the, the distribution of vodka because on the one hand, it may get tax revenue, but on the other hand, it also helps destroy the population. And it's an interesting dynamic because it is one of those situations where they're kind of walking a tightrope. I'm going to mix metaphors all over the place here. But it does seem that there's something of a appetite for, for alcohol. And if you try to restrict that appetite, a lot of that activity goes into the black market. And you know, this is something that's when I go to Russia to these alcoholism conferences and whatnot, this is sort of the central conundrum that a lot of policymakers and academics are trying to deal with is how do we try to reduce the amount of vodka consumption in the interest of public health, but not do so so much that you have what happens during the 1920s, during Prohibition, during 1985, during the, the Gorbachev anti-alcohol campaign. And that's people start going, you know, making their own samogon, homebrew, their, their bathtub gin, or they just switch to, they call it third shift vodka, stuff that's made, you know, manufactured in the, the same facilities as regular vodka, but uh, done late at night and, and without pay, paying taxes on it and so how do you balance out the, the interest in public health versus the need of the state to have these revenues coming in? That's, that's been the delicate dance for Russia even today. One of the things you do in the book is you connect or you bring vodka into the story of Russia's small and great social and political upheavals. In here, from palace coups to rebellions to even the revolution, what role did vodka play in, the political, in political and social turbulence? Well, there are a lot of a lot of these little anecdotes. That, again, you're just kind of strung along, you know, going back to the old palace coups, uh, talk about Catherine the Great, how she came to power and deposed uh, Peter the Third. A lot of it was about making sure that the army was on your side, and, and one way to get the army on your side was to apply them, give them promises of lots of alcohol. So that becomes one of those things. But I guess if you're talking about the, the very tumultuous uprisings, if you're talking about 1917 in particular, it's, it's interesting is because 1914, Tsar Nicholas II institutes a prohibition, essentially to for ease of mobilization in World War One, which uh, has horrible ramifications in terms of you know, complete loss of, of uh, state revenues and so on. But there was there were a lot of contemporaries at that point in time who saw the February Revolution of 1917 as something that there was certainly was violence there. But there were a lot of contemporaries who were saying, "Wow, this could have gone." You know, they, they got rid of the czar and whatnot. But uh, this could have been very, this could have gone very very wrong if there was free alcohol everywhere. If it was easily available. People talked about it as, as almost a kind and gentle revolution. I know that's kind of peppering, you know, papering over a lot of a lot of the details there. But uh, by contrast, there was a lot of worry, especially with uh, the October Revolution. People were always worried about the revolutionary potential of alcohol. And so even when you have Lenin coming to power and, and, the, and the Bolsheviks coming to power in Petrograd, they are on the lookout for sort of counter-revolutionary forces utilizing these alcohol warehouses so, you know, that have essentially been around the city 
since the Tsar instituted prohibition. It's not like the alcohol just disappeared. It was still there. It's just under lock and key. They were worried that there were these counter-revolutionary forces that were would open up the these casks of vodka, and the next thing you know, you'd have a riot on your hands. And so this is actually, if you go back and look at, at sort of the, the basis of the formation of something like the NKVD, uh, you know, Felix Dzerzhinsky and all that, it actually goes back to trying to root out counter-revolutionaries uh, in terms of their use of alcohol. So even that has something of a tie-in to uh, you know, some of these big developments that are very impactful later on for, uh, for the Soviet Union. Now, beginning in the late 19th century, you've already mentioned a couple of, of the, a little bit of this, the, the development of temperance movements and temperance societies. You have the prohibition between 1914 and 1925. The Soviet Union, there's numerous amounts of anti-alcohol campaigns throughout the 1920s and the 30s, really throughout the, the whole period, because as you say, the, the high levels of vodka consumption has a tremendous impact on Russia's public health. Talk about the impact of vodka in terms of demographics, life expectancy, and how this results in retarding Russia's economic performance. Yeah, I mean, there's, uh, there's always been this this notion. I think this is where my, my interest in Russian alcohol really began was sort of the demographic impacts. That, you know, when I was at, you know, did a master's program at Georgetown for two years, uh, and I worked with Murray Feshbach. I was his last research assistant, and this guy does uh, a lot of Russian demography and that was the thing that really got my, got me interested is is why they talk about things like the the, the male life expectancy at uh, at that point in time when I was there in the, in the early nineties you know it was somewhere around fifty nine years of age is average male life expectancy uh, which is crazy you know and at the same time when I was getting really interested in Russian history and Soviet history and Russian politics and so on there was so much to offer, right, that uh, talk about all the wonderful things that uh, Russia could do and, and uh, all of its great achievements in, in the arts and sciences, universal literacy, university education, all these great things, but still they're dying 15 to 20 years earlier than their neighbors to the West in Europe. And so that became something of a, you know, of a big question. Why is that? Why are trying to look at these things comparatively? And so, especially during the 1990s when the this complete demographic implosion have investigators, researchers, public health officials, and so on, you know, these international scholars. Essentially, uh, there's some, Zaridza, I think is uh, his name, uh, one of the more recent uh, investigations, claiming essentially that half of all premature male mortality in Russia has something to do with alcohol. So if you die early in Russia, chances are it's because alcohol is involved in some way, whether it's, you know, this liver cirrhosis or whether that's stumbling drunk into the street and getting hit by a tramvai or something. So it's, it is rather significant. And so it, it shows itself up. It, you know, it appears in, in a lot of different ways in the, the statistics. The, you know, one of the things that I look at, and this is a holdover from the Feshbach days, is, you know, every time that there's a release of demographic data, you sort of check the alcohol related mortality statistics and see if they're going up or down or as, as a pretty good indication of, uh, you know, sort of a good barometer as to, to Russia's over, overall demographic health. So that was part of it. But also, you know, like I said, this it shows it up in, in different um, unusual ways that you wouldn't expect. And probably the most significant one uh, that I came, uh, you know, looking at these things in comparative context, that I came to find was um, not just looking at male life expectancy or female life expectancy and comparing it with Europe or the United States or something like that. But if you look at the difference in male and female life expectancy comparatively, it tells you a lot about what's going on in essentially around the world in, in a lot of ways. And they say, okay, well, if you look at predominantly Muslim states, 
and you take average female life expectancy at birth and, and subtract from that average male life expectancy, it's a difference of one, maybe two years. If you go to some of those countries where it's predominantly you know, beer drinking or light drinking and you do that same sort of thing, the male versus female life expectancy, I think, is a three to five year difference. And the wine drinking societies are you know, around six or seven. And then if you look at predominantly distilled spirits drinking countries like vodka, like, like Russia, the difference tends to be eight or nine years, that men will die eight or nine years earlier than women. And the one country that has the biggest discrepancy between that is Russia. There are other countries that drink more. If you talk about Moldova, it drinks a lot, and uh, you know, the Czechs and the Hungarians, and, but they're drinking different things. But uh, distilled spirits difference is, in Russia, it's a difference of between 10 and 11 years that earlier, that men will die earlier than women. And that, for me, has been one of those indicators that's not always, it's not published in statistics. You just have to do a little bit of math to get to it, but is really telling about sort of the predominance um, and uh, sort of the, the destruction that alcohol and vodka in particular can wreak on, uh, on society. To the economics of it, I mean, they're losing so much productive capacity to the health problems, the early death. Uh, all of this to really maintain a high level of productivity. I mean, I, I am always struck by, I'm reminded of this poster in the 1930s that shows a, a worker on a, a, some sort of press and he's spilling a bottle of vodka onto the press. I mean, this is a perfect metaphor for that relationship. And this actually, I think in, in somewhere near the conclusion of this book where I, I look at the sort of the demographic impacts. And one of the interesting things that I find, you know, in trying to unravel the reasons for the, the demographic disaster of the 1990s, you know, a lot of people, especially economists, look at that and say, well, it was that's to be expected. That's economic dislocation. And that's the, the price of making a transition from an administrative command economy to the market. And, you know, you just sort of have this thing. But what I found is that if you look at other countries that, especially in Eastern Europe, uh, you look at Czechoslovakia after you know, the end of communism, or if you're looking at Poland or, you know, or the, get down to Bulgaria, Romania, where they don't uh, drink, maybe they drink as much, but they don't drink vodka as much. They don't have that same sort of demographic implosion during the 1990s. And so one of the things I did in, in sort of the, one of the concluding chapters was go back and look at sort of demographic projections of where the, not even the Soviet Union, but where the Russian Republic would be, what we now know as the Russian Federation. They had demographers estimating what the, the, the population would look like in the year 2050, you know, without without foreseeing the economic crash and the, the demographic crash of the 1990s. And that number, which is a fairly reliable number, is a difference of about 55 million from where it is today. And, and that, to me, is the tragedy of this whole thing. It's not just that the Russian state has been sort of living you know, the high life off of trying to extract revenues from its own population. But to get back to your point, it's like, um, imagine what Russia could do and what imagine what Russia would be like if there were 55 million more Russians and not just stumbled down drunk, but 55 million more artists or taxpaying artists or, or engineers or all of them being economically productive and sort of taxpaying members of society. And so this to me is, is kind of the great tragedy is that uh, you have this like I said, you know, vodka politics is the interchange point between Russian state and society. But it, one of the deplorable tragedies of all this is what it does to that society and how it contributes to this excess mortality and how it contributes to the sort of demographic implosion. And finally, since 2000, the Putin government has been keenly aware of the demographic problem. It's tried to address the demographic issue in a variety of ways. Um, so how does vodka politics fit into that? And, and how does the dealing with vodka or vodka politics under Putin compare and contrast to previous times? 
It's an interesting question. During the, Putin's first two terms, there wasn't a whole lot of interest in sort of promoting something of a, a coherent alcohol policy, if you will. And there were anecdotes that spill out from time to time that when presented with plans to do something about alcohol consumption, that Putin kind of scoffed and said, what, do you want me to be another Ligachov? And Ligachov was the ill-fated reformer during Gorbachev's anti-alcohol campaign. So it is kind of telling that uh, when he steps aside in 2008, 2009, and, and Medvedev comes to the presidency, that Medvedev uh, is, is one of the ones who's pushing for something of an anti-alcohol, concerted anti-alcohol campaign. And so when this came, you know, this is actually as I was starting to write the manuscript to the book, I was like, okay, here we go again. What's what's this going to be about? Because most anti-alcohol campaigns in Russian history took one of two forms. One, the, both of them are, are very well-intentioned, that they want to put the interests of, of the Russian population ahead and, and, and promote Russian health and well-being and economic productivity as well. But the usual ones tend to be implemented in a very autocratic manner, very uh, almost totalitarian manner. That's whether it's prohibition in the 19 teens and 20s or Gorbachev's in the late 1980s. It was just this notion that we can try and make people sober by decree, sort of instantly. Well, if we just restrict alcohol, then nobody's going to buy it. And those just essentially blew up in their faces both categories, both times, both. You know, so the, the finances went down the tubes and people learned that they could make their own just as easily and, and sort of exacerbated all sorts of problems. So those are, you know, that's like the worst case scenario is the, the uh, demographic implosion followed by state implosion kind of thing. The other was just sort of the half-hearted attempts and saying, okay, well, maybe we're, we'll, we'll promote temperance, but not abstinence from, from alcohol and sort of just put on put up some posters and, and, and not really do anything about it. But I was happy to, to see, as things evolved since 2009, that they didn't do sort of the autocratic method. They didn't do sort of the shock troop mentality of, well, let's just close all the kiosks, close all, the, you know, and, and restrict all vodka. All of the policies that they implemented were very much based upon sort of best practices and international experience, trying to restrict the sales hours, locations of sales, and so on. And did so in a fairly incremental fashion. And probably the most well-known one is that they tried to increase the tax revenues on, on vodka to try and make, you know, make it more expensive. And if you follow sort of the general uh, you know, economic you know, logic of all this, and, and seems to happen in every other country around the world, if you make it more expensive, people drink less of it. So it's just, uh, so, uh, so they tried that and they, and they didn't just do it radically all at once. You know, they do it every six months incrementally in a little bit to try and ratchet these things up so that they would have some, some ability to do something with it. And so, and so that, at the outset, you start to see, especially after 2009, greater increases in terms of the demographic benefits. And so this was very encouraging. And so when the, the book was originally published in 2013, 2014, I had this, this hope that this would be the end of vodka politics. You know, put, a, put a question mark at the end of it. Is it the end of vodka politics? I don't know. Because not only did it have that going for it, you had good international experience. You have you know best practices to follow. But by the time you're in sort of Putin's Russia, the importance of vodka to the state to state revenue had diminished quite a bit. So it was if you go back to the old Tsarist era, it was one third of all state revenues came from vodka. In the 1980s, even in the Soviet Union, a quarter of all state revenues came from the vodka trade. Nowadays, it's somewhere around two percent, and that's manageable. And so my my hope at that point in time was that hey, you know, now that we have Gazprom, now we have all this oil and natural gas revenues and so on. Maybe we don't have to have that same sort of addiction to promoting alcohol and alcoholism uh, at, at the, that point in time. But unfortunately, some of those dynamics that we discussed earlier, that the more you restrict alcohol 
the more it kind of seeps out into the black markets, um, seems to be increasing quite a bit. And so with the current economic crisis that Russia has been facing, probably the most well-known or one of the most well-known <laughs> moves that, uh, that Putin has instigated was that he actually has been stopping and backtracking on a lot of these you know, well-meaning anti-alcohol measures, most notably those incremental rises in the excise tax. And so for the first time since maybe Andropov, you actually have somebody, have a, a president reducing the, you know, reducing the, the costs of alcohol. Uh, and so a lot of people, again, very cynically looked at that and said, oh, look, you know, here's Putin at a time of economic strain and, and hardship for the Russian people. He's trying to keep them drunk so they won't rise up against him. And I don't I don't agree with that. I don't think that's it. I think he has very valid reasons for for kind of putting the brakes on it. There is a sort of a, a flowering of illegal activity currently in, in the Russian alcohol market. But the timing struck me as very odd. Because you could say the same thing a couple of years ago, you know, a couple of years prior to that, that it needed to happen at, the, at, uh, at any one point in time is uh, you know, kind of serendipitous. That was Mark Schrod, an assistant professor in political science at Villanova University. He's the author of Vodka Politics, Alcohol, Autocracy, and the Secret History of the Russian State. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter. Like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review on iTunes, or recommend the show to your friends. You can find past shows on iTunes, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org. Until next time, bye. Bye.